not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog on Pickled and in the books that I write. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Sibel Botron. Now, Sibel's actually been on the program a few times. If you look back into some of our classic episodes, seasons one, two, three, you'll hear her there. And she's back to talk about where she's at these days and to tell us her story. Hi, Sibel. Hey, Jean. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so happy to talk to you. We have been in this really interesting relationship all these years <laughs> where when I first joined this podcast, which was 2012, Amanda said, you know, join this online group that we're all in so that we can connect to the recovery community there. And you are in that group. And so That's we've right. been in alignment for almost, what is it now, like nine years. And yet this is our first time That's just right. having a one-on-one special devoted time together. I'm so happy to be with you. That's so true. Me too, Jean, really. Thank you for asking me on. Well, I'm glad you're here. And I really love the work that you're doing these days. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, I want our listeners to get to know you. So Sibel, tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Yeah, thank you, Jean. So my name is Sibel, as you said, and I use she, her pronouns. I live in Miami, Florida, which is traditional traditional Tequesta land, and I have been alcohol-free for almost 10 years, and I'm in recovery from alcohol use, childhood sexual trauma, family dysfunction, codependency, self-harm, perfectionism, hustling for my worthiness, and anxiety. And really, my recovery story is a story of self-regulation and lack of self-regulation and healing from that. So um, I was born 57 years ago in New Jersey, and I grew up in a home with a mom and a dad and half brother and half sister from my dad's first marriage and two younger sisters. And my dad died when I was in second grade. So I was just eight years old. It was very tragic and sad. He was he was young. And my mom really suffered from untreated complex PTSD from her childhood. She really had suffered a lot of abandonment as a child. And her, so her complex PTSD manifested as a lot of insecurity and anger. After my dad died, there were a lot of boyfriends in the house. It made for sometimes a lot of fun and sometimes chaotic childhood. And I spent a lot of time outdoors and playing with my sisters and kind of in a lot of fantasy world, I think, to cope. Part of my story, too, is there is some sexual trauma in there from one of her boyfriends, which I really normalized and kind of pushed away. And that didn't kind of resurface until a few years ago. 
when I was in fifth grade, we moved to California and I got into the school system there and experienced a lot of bullying. I had one friend and then she moved away. Those were some rough years. That was middle school and the first year of high school. So for about four years, I'd suffered a lot. I I didn't have friends and, and I did experience bullying, like I said. And when I was about 14, there was a baby shower at my house with my mom and some of her friends. And one of the other women there, her daughter was also attending the baby shower. We were assigned to be the servers and we were supposed to serve champagne. And she taught me how to drink. And she said, one for them and one for us. And that was the first time I got tipsy, pretty drunk. My drinking kind of took off from there in a way that felt very normal. I went to my first parties in 10th grade and I associated alcohol with connection, with friendships. I became popular. I had boyfriends. I I had a really good, strong group of girlfriends and we partied. And I really took on and adopted that party persona. And that kind of stayed with me through college. And that's where in college, I met my husband in Spain. I returned to Spain. I went away. I returned and we ended up having a beautiful romantic romance. And we got married and we moved to California and we had three children who are now adults, 25, 23, and 21. And so my drinking was really wrapped around, I think, a lot of anxiety that I had as a young mother. I was determined to give my children a wonderful, harm-free childhood. There was just a lot of perfectionism in there. And gosh, you know, Gina, I have so much compassion for my younger self, and it took me a long time to get there. You know, I would stop drinking as I was pregnant and nursing my my kids. And I would say when my when my kids were, you know, toddlers and a little bit older, my drinking just became so habitual and By five o'clock, my shoulders were up to my ears in tension. And that was the only thing I could think of as far as like how to take care of myself. And again, the self-regulation, like I just didn't know how to get rid of my stress. We moved to Miami when um, actually we hadn't had my daughter yet, but when my two boys were little and we decided to live here, my husband at the time was working in Latin America, Miami made sense. And we got a great group of friends. My return to my party persona. So now I was a young mom and I was a partier and having fun. And that's how I managed the whole time with this kind of stress of wanting to be a really, really good mom. I ended up homeschooling my kids, um, which was wonderful. And of course, a lot of work. And when I was 47 years old, I just hit that that wonderful, beautiful day in July where I said enough is enough. And I realized that I was really damaging and hurting myself with alcohol. And I stopped. And that was in 2011. And then, as you said, I, that brought me into the recovery spaces. I joined online private, secret Facebook groups. I made friends with other women who were like me and were looking to 
take care of themselves differently. I joined gratitude groups and started just opening up and learning. I almost look at it as like living in a parallel universe. Like I was, everything on the outside pretty much looked the same. Um, Probably a lot of people on the outside could not see big differences, but I had like moved into a whole different way of being. And I started to learn how to self-regulate without alcohol. I had known about She Recovers. I knew Dawn from some of those groups that I had mentioned. And they were going to do a big event in New York. And I decided to go. And this was a very pivotal moment for me, for my recovery. Because I flew up to New York. And suddenly, I i mean, I just get chills thinking about it. I was in this beautiful hotel. I know you were there too. I met so many women who I had only known from the internet, I felt celebrated as a woman in long-term recovery. And it was such a shift for me. And also I got to experience for the first time, Taryn Strong's trauma-informed yoga in you know a massive ballroom with hundreds of other women. And that was a big change for me to do her yoga class. It's also where I saw a little tiny table in the corner of the conference and it said she recovers coaching and it was totally an intuitive magnetic pull for me to beeline it over to that table and get some information on becoming a coach and I knew I didn't know how it was going to happen I didn't know what it was going to look like but I knew in my heart that that was the direction I wanted to go in and then since then I went to um, the big event in LA and I started to go to retreats in Mexico and Canada. And it was on those retreats that again, I, the celebration, I felt so it was a self-love. It was a, it's a turn for me to returning to this idea of really taking care of myself and loving myself and finally letting go of the shame and the guilt and the remorse from past drinking. And it was in Canada on one of the retreat retreats. And we had just done breath of joy. I was on my yoga mat surrounded by all these other women in in beautiful Salt Spring Island. And Taryn was leading the class when suddenly a 10-year-old me appeared right in front of me. And that's the only way I can describe it. And she was pissed. (laughs) And I didn't know why she was angry and what she was doing there. But this was around the time of the Me Too movement. Right after that, I started doing deep inner child work And I started to really come to a place of forgiving my mom, um, forgiving myself, and treating myself with a whole different level of love and compassion. My mouth is open when you said that your 10-year-old self appeared before you. Did you feel like it was a physical presence or did you feel yourself embody that younger you? What was the experience? Yeah, you know, it sounds strange, like, like, (laughs) it's not like it was a ghost or something. But it was like, I knew it was me. I knew she was 10. I could see her. And I could see her anger. And how angry she was, I could feel her and see her. And I just sensed it like, she was no longer in hiding. She was coming out and she wanted to be paid attention to. And what did you do? I was surprised, you know, I was on my yoga mat and I was surprised and I was like, huh, wonder what that was about. And I think I started talking about it right away. 
very soon after I I was actually invited by uh, two other friends to start doing inner child work. And that's what I did. Have you seen her since in that same way? Oh, I'm in touch with little Savelle all the time. <laughs> so I want to hear all about this. I have to tell you, I have a friend who had a very similar experience while she was shopping in Costco. And she mm. literally picked up this child that only she could see and put her in the the little seat of the shopping mm. cart and pushed her around the store and talked to her. And she said, I know I looked crazy to everyone else, but this was where this child mm. appeared. And this is where I needed to connect with her. So I don't think it's crazy at all because I know other people that have had similar experience, but I just think it's so fascinating. The most amazing part, Sabelle, is that you were ready to welcome her and recognize her and honor her. Mm -hmm. You're doing some really, really great teaching for others around that inner child work, sharing what you've learned and helping others to identify and heal that part of themselves. And this is really what I wanted to talk about with you today as part of our discussion, because I just love every single thing you're posting on Instagram right now is just mind blowing for me. So where should we start? How do we begin this conversation about what this inner child work is, which sounds kind of hippy dippy 1970s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I wish there was a new name for it that sounded more modern. I'm sure there is, but it also is so important, I think, to just label it plainly as working with our inner child because it's so simple and so powerful. Where mm -hmm. do we start? Tell us what it is and, and how yeah. this can help. You're right in saying that it's it, it kind of emerged, I think, in the 70s. I do believe that's, that's true. Um, it's something that I wasn't attracted to at all. I had kind of heard about maybe in the 90s. And up until now, I was not attracted to it. So I think it's like either something that, that your heart and your mind open to, if it's useful. I do think also that because I had been doing so much recovery work myself, that little Sabelle was able to kind of come out. Like I think she came out because she knew she was going to be heard and it was time. It wouldn't really be a complete story as far as like where, where I've taken all of this and where it is today without talking about teenage Sabelle. <laughs> so it's not just little Sabelle. And little Sabelle for me comes at, like I said, she's about nine or 10 years old. Some people get really in touch with a younger self. I am, of course, in touch with all of me. But really, my, my inner child comes out around nine or 10 years old. And then my inner teenager is like 16. And she thinks coaching and the Instagram and all the things that I'm doing with that right now is just a blast. She thinks it's her internship and that she gets to play. <laughs> and then what's really fun is we're all familiar with the critical voice, right? And the critical voice inside all of us is kind of the critical parent who's just there trying to manage and manage things and keep us safe and don't do this and do that. But the critical voice, we kind of get to a point, I think, in recovery that we outgrow her. And it's, I don't want to banish her from the island. She's still 
she gets to kind of chill out and actually take care of herself and do some self-care, the critical voice. But really who's emerging is the loving parent. And the loving parent is like the big, I call her Big Sabel. And Big Sabel is there to kind of make sure and take care care of everybody in the most loving way. And so she lets critical parent Sabel, you know, know that she doesn't have to have you know, her job is taken care of. Before this call, I told little Sabelle, you can go and take a nap. <laughs> and my napping place, <laughs> my napping place looks like a beautiful green moss bed that's circular in the middle of a forest. And it, there's maybe a thunderstorm going on in the background. There's the colors purple and green come in, the smells of jasmine and and lavender. And she curls up and she's not too hot and not too cold and she's not getting wet. The thunderstorm's far away and there are no bugs. She's just at the perfect temperature and she can nap. And I'll do that when teenage Sabelle, for example, wants to listen to a true crime podcast or something like that, you know, and do teenage stuff. And and when teenage Sabelle comes out, she gets fully supported by my loving, the big Sabelle loving parent. And she, she gets all of that nurturing and all of that, you know, like, I believe in you and you're allowed to make mistakes. And you, you, I just love you so much and you get to be you and have fun with this. And so that I don't get bogged down in the seriousness of, of perfectionism. When I think about my teenage self, any of the healing work I've done around teenage stuff for me involved shame. When you were talking about teenage Sabelle and what she's like, I didn't know what you were going mm-hmm. to say. In fact, what, my, what I thought you were going to say was that she was rebellious. When you started to mention Instagram and uh, all of the social media, I was surprised when you said that she's loving the playtime and the fun of it because I thought you were going to say she was your critic telling you you're doing it wrong. So that maybe tells me mm-hmm. something about my teenage self. <laughs> compared to yours. Mine was no fun, apparently. (laughs) I've noticed that the posts that you share that really resonate with me are the ones that say codependency can look like dot, dot, dot. Can you talk a bit about that for us, Sabelle, about what some of our feelings and behaviors are telling us about what needs attention and healing inside? Yeah, I can. And and before we start about the codependency, I just to say that the teenage Sabelle that was living in the 70s and the 80s did cope by becoming a rebel and did cope by going faster and faster. And so I look at this also as like a do-over. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so just leading into that, doing all of this kind of inner work has led to quite a a remarkable awareness for me that codependency is really about um, me trying to get my needs for safety, love, and belonging met outside of myself. Mm-hmm. So that's where I started to get really fascinated. Like all of my posts are based on my own experience. So I started to get really fascinated with when do I get scared and what are the thoughts and what's really happening? What is the story I'm holding on to or the belief I'm holding on to that's making me react this way in just in my day-to-day life? Something will happen and that's how I create those posts. So it'll be something like 
I feel criticized. So I notice that I'm hypersensitive to criticism with this belief that somebody else needs to take care of my needs for belonging when really that is my job to take care of that myself. And that doesn't mean that I'm like so self-sufficient that I isolate. It just means that I am kind of whole and taking care of myself so that I can enjoy other people. And that reduces my blame and resentment towards the people who I love the most. So let me see if I can connect the dots and understand how that works. So if being sensitive to criticism relates back to looking for our needs to be met through other people, then when someone says something that feels critical, even if it's just an observation or, you know, maybe if it is legit criticism, rather than just taking it at face value and choosing whether to accept it or reject it or leave it with that person or make a change as a result, we make it become something bigger as in a representation that this person is not only criticizing us, but failing to do the job we've given them without telling them of meeting all of our needs. Therefore, they're rejecting us. (laughs) Is that how it snowballs? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's first of all, so it's perceived, right? We perceive it as criticism. Mm -hmm. And really anything anybody else says is about them. We're just a mirror of them and they're a mirror of us. And so if I believe what they're saying is true, That's really my own internal work to do. I always tell the example of the blue hair. Like, I don't have blue hair. Some people do. I don't have blue hair. So if somebody says to me, you have blue hair, I know that's not true. So it doesn't mean anything to me. So it rolls off. But if somebody, gosh, says something about my body or that I quote unquote did something wrong. And I hook into that because I believe that I'm holding that against myself. Mm -hmm. And I believe that to be true. That's where the healing gets to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, They are just really my reminder or my teacher that shows me the areas that I get to turn inward and do some more loving. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the willingness to buy into it or to, as you say, to perceive it. It's it's what we mm-hmm. are invested in that's telling mm-hmm. us something. As you were talking about getting to know the different ages of yourself and, and working internally, I recall reading some work on internal family systems. I believe Schwartz is the author. Trauma causes us to split off into these mm-hmm. different roles. And part of the healing work is to then take all of those parts and build a family and not banish them, but integrate them. Would you Mm -hmm. say that you at times are able to integrate these parts of yourself or do you find that it works best to keep identifying them as separate parts? Absolute integration. (laughs) Yeah. And I love parts work. Um, I learned about parts work from one of my sisters. I have two sisters and Everybody in my birth family is in recovery, which just is amazing. We're getting to really all enjoy second chances. Parts work for me. I, I learned about it from one of my sisters a few years ago. Really helped me identify the manager, 
the people pleaser, you know, like all those different parts and everybody gets loved and everybody gets integrated. I'm just thinking there's no small talk at your family dinner if everybody's in recovery. (laughs) (laughs) You're not talking about the weather. Uh, (laughs) You go right for the big, the deep stuff, I bet. I usually don't know a person's story before I interview them on this show. So I'm usually learning details of a, a person's backstory at the same time as our listeners are hearing it. Sometimes things will come up show after show after show, and it might seem like, oh, Jean is purposefully booking guests that have this similar aspect of their story, but it's purely coincident. So as it would so happen in this month surrounding this episode, many people have mentioned losing a parent in childhood as part of their story. And, you know, we know that there's a connection between trauma and addiction. So it makes sense that most of us can identify something traumatic, big or small, that laid the foundation for what was to come. But Do you think that there's anything else at play too? Like, have you made any other connections? Have you talked to other people that have gone through something similar? And I'm guessing your siblings may inform this as well too. In the role that have an adverse childhood experience like that plays in what happens as our lives unfold. Yeah, well, you're you're right that this is the kind of conversations that we do have as a family, and we're all very fascinated with our ACE scores and taking our ACE scores and <laughs> figuring that stuff out. And um, what my, is that? What's your ACE score? The adverse childhood experience. So we're all about ACE scores, and and my and my mom also experienced her father died also when she was nine. So this is very intergenerational. What's fascinating is to see how different people cope differently. For my story, I did use alcohol as a way to numb, and it took took me so long to understand that. Obviously, alcohol is very normalized in our culture and celebrated. When I first stopped drinking, I remember going to my mom and saying, what happened? What happened that I'm trying, trying to not feel? And, you know, I remember she was rubbing my back and saying, nothing, nothing happened. And it just, it took us all a long time to really look at objectively, like these experiences that happened with with moving, with my dad's death, the rage that happened, chaos and rage. There was a lot of magical, beautiful, wonderful parts of my childhood too, But just to kind of look at all of that and take the opportunity now to first forgive myself for using alcohol as a way to numb and then forgive others and and have that compassion. Jean, the way it is for me now, for a long time, I wished that I had gotten sober before even getting married, but for sure before having children. I really, I I spent a long time in that kind of regret and remorse place of, oh, I wish I had gone sober. I wish I'd gone sober. And now Mm. I would say in the last two years, I've been able to look at pictures of myself sitting on the couch, reading a book, you know, to my three children when they were younger and have this outpour of love for that younger me and knowing that everything turned out exactly as it should. and 
really letting go of that, that regret. And then turning that also towards my mom, towards my husband and towards anybody who I love deeply, but I did spend time and in blame and wishing that they somehow needed to change in order for me to feel safe. And I'm not in that place anymore. I really just feel such love for them. And and here's the inner child stuff coming back is I can see their inner child because I'm in touch with mine. I see it in them. And I have so much love for their inner children. It's so transformative to be in that place of love and forgiveness and compassion towards myself and then towards the people who I'm the closest to. I suspect that you are a little more advanced emotionally than I am because I'm going to tell you a confession. And that is that when I spot other people's inner child, at least people in my life, or when I see things that they're doing that are lessons that I've already learned, I want them to have what I have and I want them to learn what I learn. And it almost pains me to see people going through the lessons that I've already been through because part of me wants to spare them that. There's a part of me that hasn't quite evolved yet that sort of wants to tell people what they should do because I think I know because I've learned some lessons. (laughs) So if I were to try to evolve that part of myself and become a little more compassionate in the way that I can hear that you are, could you give me some things to think about or some ideas to keep in mind that might help me be a little more compassionate and patient with other people? And their journeys? Yeah, absolutely. So Catherine, who used to be a host of the Bubble Hour, has said often, and this helps me so much, keep your eyes on your own paper. So for that, what that means for me is that I get to work on myself and myself only, and everybody else has their own journey. And I kind of don't get to interfere with their journey. So that that's kind of the first part of that. What's helped me it's recently, my, my coach is Beverly Sartain, uh, who's amazing. She's amazing. And actually, she is going to be uh, on this podcast soon as well. So yeah, keep your ears open, folks, for Bev's yeah. <laughs> interview. She's awesome. She's amazing. And she is my coach. And what she says is that everyone you're working with, like if, if I'm coaching another woman, is to have the understanding that everybody has inside of them all the inner resources they need for their own healing. So they are already self-containing everything they already need. And so I can be a bright light and kind of um, an inspiration and people can feel motivated, but I really, there's nothing I can do to kind of go in and fix people. So when I get that urge and I get it, I totally get that urge to fix other people. It's really, I'm trying to fix them so that I feel safe. Okay. That, that does help me. That's Mm -hmm. a good reminder. As you were saying that, that they already have the tools, it, I was thinking right away that it would be as if I was having a math problem and instead of someone giving me the tool that I needed, which would be a calculator, they gave me an abacus, which I don't know how to use, <laughs> and said, here, this worked for me. 
<laughs> exactly. And then we're taking away their agency to figure things out their own way, you know, and um, we can love them and tell them, I believe in you and I support you. But maybe in this lifetime, that's not what they're supposed to be learning about. I mean, I, I really, truly believe that. And it's really about if I see that somebody else if something's resonating with me and I see that somebody else is doing something that I wish that they would change. That's the opportunity to turn it around and look inside of myself. Mm, you know, I love that. And I hate that at the same time. Because... <laughs> How annoying. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true just fascinated by this 10 year old that showed up on the mat at Salt Spring Island. So I, I have a few more questions about that experience. If, if you're comfortable talking about it, if, if not, we can move on to something else. I'm wondering if you had conscious memory of the incidents that she was angry about. I'm assuming that that goes back to the sexual trauma you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Had you buried that or normalized it and you came to a new realization when you started to get into what her anger was or what was the work around that piece like? Yeah, I had totally normalized it. My dad was a scientist and he had an assistant at his work who was a lot younger than my parents. And for some reason, they hired him as my babysitter. And then when I was an infant, and when they came home, he confessed to having inappropriately touched me while he was changing my diaper. And after my dad died, he became my mom's boyfriend. And when I was nine years old, I was taking a bath by myself and he came into the bathroom and crouched down and put his hand in, under the water and touched me. And I pushed his hand away and told him to stop. I had to do it several times, I remember. And then I went to my mom and told her that what he had done and she didn't break up with him. So that became totally normalized in my mind as just a part of my childhood. We had a dog, we had yellow wallpaper, and then this person did that to me. It wasn't until the Me Too mo movement happened Actually, I was on vacation with my mom and she and I were talking about the Me Too movement and we started to recount all the things that had happened to us. She, hers, and and I talked about mine. I had I had so normalized all of it. Like any 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 weird thing that happened. One time I was on a picnic in Spain and someone flashed us and you know, all those things that have happened to so many of us. I had normalized. And so it was really in the Me Too movement that I was like, oh, hey, wait a minute. I'm in therapy. I've been in therapy for 10 years. And I went to my therapist and said, was that sexual abuse? Was that sexual assault? And she said, yes. So that kind of started me in looking at that differently. Um, I shared it, uh, the information with um, one of my sisters and she hadn't known about it. And it was kind of like the secret was now out. That's really kind of was the catalyst of my whole family really diving deep into recovery was actually that incident, you know, along with many other things. So a lot of good is, has come from it, of course, and the healing. Back up in Salt Springs, 
Salt Spring Islands on a She Recovers retreat. There's a woman there named Haiti, I think. She's a masseuse and she's a clairvoyant. And so I was really starting to own my story of what had happened to me as a child. And I went in and she said, the guides are telling me that you need to and she did a movement with her hands as if she was cutting scissor with scissors. It's like both of her hands were scissors. And she's, she's like, cut, 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 cut from the story, cut from the story. You have so much work to do. Uh, you have so much up leveling to do. You have such important work to do. Don't let it hold you down. And that was, I mean, amazing for me. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm up leveling here. And so I was able to like float up from it and, So it's still part of what had happened to me. And I don't really know, like, you know, you know, how much of it was buried, how much of it's connected to my drinking. I don't really know. But I do know where it ties back into my inner child work is the two affirmations. And a lot of the work that I do with women is kind of to discover what kind of affirmations are are unique and particular to their inner child is helpful. And the two affirmations that are strongest and most powerful for me and my inner child is I will listen to you and I will protect you. Mm. I'm feeling that in my heart. Our brain doesn't really release these things to us until we're ready to deal with them. At least I've heard that before. Is there truth to that in your experience? If it's coming up for us, it's because we've now found the tools to handle it, even if If it doesn't unfold exactly the way we like, we can trust ourselves that if we keep working at it, we can get ourselves there. Do you find that to be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think that that's 100% true, that it comes forward when we're ready to see it. And that, that ties back into, you know, other people and their, and their journeys too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you have some healing to do then between you and, and your mom? Did you, did you feel rage towards her for not protecting you? Or did you immediately know that it was your job now? I felt hurt when I realized Mm -hmm. that, that she didn't protect me. Like when I got it through adult eyes, I felt hurt that she didn't protect me. And at the same time, by then I had been eight years sober. So I understood what, I don't want to say I was quick to forgive because it's been a long journey, but it was, um, I did feel sad Mm. and hurt. (sighs) This is heavy stuff. This is hard stuff. Thank you for being so vulnerable and, and open in sharing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're welcome. It's funny because before I was like, am I going to talk about that? And I thought, but I'm just going to see how this goes. So, (laughs) you know, and you asked and I was like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. What the work that I did around talking about it, just to, to kind of be really transparent with my process is I put little Sabelle in, in her napping area that I described. And I told teenage Sabelle that she didn't have to tell Mm -hmm. the story. That big Sabelle was going to tell the story Uh and that teenage Sabelle didn't have to do anything. Because I think when I thought about it and I got really nervous, it was because teenage Sabelle thought she was going to have to talk about it. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had this experience and not known what it was, but now you would. Sometimes I will start telling a story and I feel like a runaway train, you know? 
that I, it's like, I can't pull it back in. I've lost control of the story and I'm almost like another person is inhabiting my body, (laughs) (laughs) telling their version of the story. And I think, oh, I don't like this. I'm, you know, being too angry or I'm being too cynical or something. And if we're not working on self-regulating and being really self-aware that sometimes when we feel like we're being overtaken by something else, it's just one of those aspects of ourselves that we've kind of relied on that steps up and takes over and we can be more mindful about relieving them of that duty. How does that work in your mind? Yeah. I mean, this is why I named my coaching business Wide Awake Recovery, because for me, everything is about falling asleep and waking up over and over again. Um, Kind of the story behind that is when I was a few, maybe a year sober, I was running, I was listening to Katy Perry, it was raining, and she was singing the song Wide Awake. And I realized like, that's what recovery is for me is staying awake. And I think when I'm in the middle of a story, and it feels like a runaway train, part of me has kind of fallen asleep, you know, and then can experience all the things like a vulnerability shame hit, or did I say it wrong? Did I say too much? Did I say, you know, all that stuff. Let's say I'll, I'll listen to this, to this recording. And it used to be that I couldn't stand the sound of my own voice. Um, you know, quite frankly, I hadn't listened to the, the bubble hour interviews that I did years and years ago until very recently. I couldn't because I was so worried that I would just be so uncomfortable. The recovery process for me and doing this inner child work has meant that I started, I'm starting to like myself more and more. And recently I, I was coaching with a coaching partner. We do this on Zoom and we record ourselves. I went back and I re-listened to one of our recordings And I assumed and thought that I would have that adverse, like, icky, oh, there's my voice. And why do I say, why did I say that? And I don't like the way I look. And it was amazing, Jean. I was in the kitchen and I had it on my phone and I was listening to the recording. I was washing the dishes and I looked over and I was like, I like her. (laughs) That's a great feeling. It was so beautiful. And and that felt like a milestone for me. It felt like a, a, a real, like, oh, wow, this is a different level of recovery to yeah. really, really accept and like myself. Mm-hmm. It was just so beautiful. I feel like this is, this is one of the promises when we say to people, listen, it gets better. It gets easier. And it's not just that you have to like get tough and endure your life without any numbing mechanisms in sobriety. It's that if you heal yourself, what you don't need numbing mechanisms to get through life. You, you build a life that you enjoy and a big part of it. And it almost seems impossible to a lot of us is that we do start to like ourselves and we become the people that we want to be, that we esteem to be and never really thought that we could be. And it's amazing. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. You know, I edit the show every single week and I, I sit down to edit and am fully prepared to erase my entire self out of the conversation. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure I said something terrible that needs to come out of there. And I, I have a very similar reaction time and time again. I mean, I'm always amazed by the guests. They're always amazing. It also surprises me that even when I'm not perfect, I still can either forgive myself or enjoy myself. That's, that is 
that's new ground. I love that. So beautiful. That's beautiful. So talk about the work that you do. Talk about some of the programs that you have and what are the basics of this inner child work? Yeah. So the work that I'm doing now is um, currently I'm volunteer hosting for the She Recovers online gatherings, which are for free. And I just feel so lucky. Month to month, I, I wave my hand and sign up. And if I get a spot, I'm just so excited that I get to hold space there for women. And you can find out more on their website. And I have my own coaching business, which is called Wide Awake Recovery. Um, There's a website. I'm on Instagram, all under the same name, and also Facebook. And in that space, I do individual coaching. Mostly the women that come to me are women who are either sober or sober curious. And they are struggling with codependency. They want to build boundaries. Perhaps they live with somebody who still drinks. Maybe they're struggling with mom guilt or shame from past behaviors, or they're excited about discovering their inner child. And I also run group coaching courses. Um, One course is called Brave Boundaries, and we work on boundaries. And the other course is Self-Love for Your Inner Child. And I'm going to be launching a third course in the fall called the Perfectionism Workshop. Before we go in the last few minutes, um, where, where do you suggest people start? For anyone who's just feeling stuck, feeling ready to either, as you said, level up or move forward in some way, do you have any tried and true processes that you recommend for people to just kind of find some momentum and find the courage to do that one next thing that moves them forward? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I can only speak to what worked for me and what worked for me was to get into community. For me personally, women who were also letting go of alcohol as a coping mechanism, listening to others, really doing the uncomfortable thing of reaching out to other people and kind of opening up and talking about what's going on. What works for me today for self-regulation is breath work. I use breath work throughout the day, inhaling, holding, exhaling, holding again. That's probably my favorite way to self-regulate. I also love emotional freedom technique, which is also called tapping. I love burning candles and putting on nice music, dancing, getting into nature, podcasts. These are all the ways that I self-regulate just to help me coming back into my body and moving away from my mind and my thoughts and back into the present moment. Sabelle, thank you so much for being here and sharing your heart and your wisdom and your stories with us today. Thank you, Jean, for having me. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed my discussion with Sabelle Botran of Wide Awake Recovery. Check the show notes for links to her website and She Recovers and also her social media links. And I hope that everyone has a wonderful day. Give a big hug to yourself, your inner child, and your inner teenager. That's all for this week, everyone. Until next time, take good care. Own it, I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I 
Just want to 